This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on Zoom calls all day, having to wear a mask everywhere, and now using your eyes and your eyes only to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite line of brow products that are so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, you can have the most amazing brows ever. They have an amazing range of products from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, and gels. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash XFi. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're going to do some good old-fashioned myth-busting. I am so excited. I mean, it's it's nice to do, you know, just bust some myths every now and then. I love digging out stereotypes and myths and all sorts of heterosexist whatevers and getting rid of them. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I, I don't feel like I use the word phallocentric all that often. <laughs> Psych, I use it on public transit as often as possible just to make people uncomfortable around me. <laughs> um, actually, I don't. Uh, but this whole lesbian bed death idea and stereotype is as phallocentric as the Washington Monument. Oh, yeah. But apparently so American. (laughs) It is kind of American (laughs) because, in fact, this term lesbian bed death was coined in the book American Couples, Money, Sex and Power, which came out in 1983 Oh. And it was co-authored by sociologists Pepper Schwartz and Philip Bloomstein. And I was surprised that old Pepper, oh. <laughs> old Peppermill, came up as the arch enemy to lesbian sexuality because she kind of co-coined this term because it's the same Pepper who we talked about in our singlehood stigma episode. That's what she's from. Yeah, as soon as I saw the name, because my first reaction was like, oh, Pepper, what a great name. And then I was like, wait, I know Pepper. How do I know Pepper? But yeah, she had some good things to say about single ladies, right? Yeah, she's the one who's like, single by choice is A-OK. We need to get rid of the singlehood stigma. And I was looking across the internet for any interviews that Pepper has done since 1983 maybe reevaluating this whole lesbian bed death thing that Nothing? that Pepper and, and old Phil kicked off but I couldn't find anything listeners or Pepper if you're listening Pepper if you're aware of of this um I would love to see it because I am really curious to know since this concept has come under such scrutiny since then whether she still stands by the, I mean, talk about stigma, um, a really stigmatizing term that she came up with. Um, and just a quick side note that whenever I think of Pepper Schwartz, I think of Pepper Saltzman, who is played by Nathan Lane on Modern Family. He's a fabulous friend of Cam and Mitchell. Who always throws very elaborately themed brunches and parties. Ah. And, uh, Pepper is just one of 
my favorite like rando characters who comes up on TV. So it made, it made me so sad to think ill of a pepper <laughs> because I usually, you know, like hold hold pepper so dearly in my heart. I think my uh, godmother had a had a, a, a Scotty named Pepper. I was about to say Pepper also sounds like the name that people give small dogs. Schnauzers. Little schnauzers. <laughs> um, so what Pepper and Philip? Oh, yeah. I forgot we have an episode to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all Pep and Phil in this massive study that they conducted and published in American Couples, which uh, by 1983 standards, the book kind of went viral. Um, in their research and surveys with their study participants, they concluded that lesbians have the least amount of sex over time compared to straight and gay couples. And it wasn't only that lesbians were having less self-reported sex than straight and gay couples, but that the drop-off over time was also the steepest. Mm, that Yeah, and so naturally that brings them to the extreme name of lesbian bed death. It's so extreme. So extreme. And I kept accidentally uh, r- typing... Deathbed? L- yes, <laughs> lesbian deathbed over and over again. I was like, whoa, this episode just got so dark. I know what you were about to say, not only because you and I are so connected, but because literally the other day when I came into the office and I was like, what are we what are we talking about this week? And you were like, I'm already reading about lesbian deathbed. And I was like, I'm just not going to, I think I know what she means, but also, and then I just kind of chuckled to myself. Oh, thank you. Thanks for just like <laughs> letting me <laughs> continue in that vein. I knew what you meant, but also like, oh, that could be sad. We could make, we could make jokes. I don't know. I'm just going to let it, let it, let it ride. So the precise wording of how, Pep and Phil conducted their survey is really important to this conversation because they asked these survey participants, lesbian women, gay men, straight men and women, how often they had had sex with their partners in the past like week, month, year. And of the lesbian couples, when we were looking at, um, how often they'd had sex, you know, in the past week, or if they'd had sex at least once in the past week. Lesbian couples who had been together for less than two years, 76% of them were like, yeah, we've we've had the sex in the past week. And then from two to 10 years together, the percentage drops off to 37. Meanwhile, for married couples, 83% of the people who had been together for two years or less had had sex at least once a week. And 73% of the people who'd been together for two to 10 years had had sex in the past week. And gay men had similar statistics. So you do see from the less than two years to the two to 10 year mark, there is that gap Mm -hmm. of having sex within the past week, last month. And they also found that, you know, lesbians were likely to say that uh, they and their partners hadn't had had any of the sex in like the past month. Mm. So they're like, something's going on here yeah. and it is bed death. Ooh, they didn't want to look at it from like, well, what does it mean when men are involved? What are, what are norms that are dictating these things? What about bisexual or pansexual people? Well, and that's something that's really highlighted in the New York times book review of, of American couples from 83, um, where the reviewer 
It's like, okay, what we've learned from this is that regardless of sexual orientation, men and women have sex in just profoundly, they use the word profound, profoundly different ways. Quote, women, lesbian or straight, do not like to dominate, to be the more powerful partner, to feel superior. They want a balance. They want equality. And then in parentheses, the author goes on to write, so important is a balance of power to lesbians that they are the group whose members are the most likely to have split up to resent being put in a more powerful role. Indeed, they're the group that has sex the least often since a common lament among them was a dislike for being the one who always had to initiate sex. So basically, the conclusion drawn from this is like lesbian bed death exists because Women just, we don't want to have to initiate anything. But also, I love that um, some of the fans of our BDSM episodes would probably have a bone to pick with the assertion across the board that women, regardless of sexual orientation, never want to dominate. Yeah, I'm nodding my head vigorously. I mean, there's, there's so, so much in this one brief paragraph from this book review, um, because... A lot of it is just playing into and reinforcing, of course, binary gender stereotypes, because we have men and women just divided into two groups. And then you have stereotypes of gay men as being super promiscuous, whereas lesbians are sexless because there's not a penis in the room to dominate, to initiate things. I mean, like reading reading this just reminded me of you know, when you're um, trying to figure out where you and your girlfriend want to go out to dinner or go out for drinks, and it's like, where do you want to go? Oh, I don't know. Where, where do you want to go? Oh, no, I don't, I don't know. Where do you want to go? And you, like, 45 minutes later, you are so hungry, and you end up going to the Weeping. same. <laughs> you end up just, like, going to McDonald's and saying, screw it. You just described my my relationship with my boyfriend, honestly. Um, yeah, I wasn't sure where that story was going. <laughs> Well, not not to any restaurant anytime soon. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, but it's, I mean, I think that pointing that out, Kristen, is so important, not only to highlight the faults with Pep and Phil's research, but also to point out the faults that could exist when researchers don't excavate their own, not only their own biases, but also just sort of the constraints that are on all of us socially in our days and ages. Um, because if you're not pulling all of those things apart, then you're not going to get a true picture of what's going on with people's sex lives. Well, and another reason why uh, the concept has been criticized is that Schwartz and Bloomstein, a.k.a. Pep and Phil, uh, really drew from a small, rather homogenous, very uh, white <laughs> study sample. Yeah, so, also, historically speaking, these kinds of supposed lesbian bed death statistics could almost be considered a product of confirmation bias. Exactly. Yeah. So, Kristen and I were thumbing through uh, the book Human Sexuality and Encyclopedia. Like you do, a little light reading every day before work to really get pumped up to talk about gender and sexuality. And in, in the lesbian section... Uh, I just I love everything I just said. We've got it dog-eared, of course. (laughs) The whole book is dog-eared every page. 
Uh, they write, at least as far back as the ancient Hebrews, commentators have assumed two women together could do nothing sexually. Hello, have you people listened to our Boston Marriages episode? Same thing. The assumption that two women living together or coexisting or hanging out, cuddling or whatever... It's never going to be sexual because, you know, A, women are frigid and they're moral, upstanding, virtuous, virgin, virginal angels. But also like, well, there ain't no penis involved. Yeah. I mean, what what can you possibly do? I mean, th- this is even so we're recording this like very soon after uh, we closed out our summer series on romantic comedies. The last episode of which was on uh queer rom-coms and it reminds me this whole thing reminds me of a scene in kissing jessica stein where jessica stein who has never had any sexual relations with a woman is asking her soon-to-be girlfriend like so how do we even dot 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 i mean it's not (laughs) yeah and, and we've been thinking this just for like thousands of years. Well, yeah, I mean, there's the episode of Sex in the City where Samantha's dating the female artist, right? Yes. And, like, it's the biggest deal to her that, and, and it's normalized in the uh, narrative, uh, it's the biggest deal that a penis is not involved. And so the artist woman makes this big show of presenting her with a dildo because, like, oh, here it is, don't worry. Like, I want you to be sexually satisfied. And, and that's a positive thing. Caring about your partner's sexual uh, preferences is always a positive thing. But that just furthers the whole narrative of like, A, straight women are totally stupid <laughs> and ignorant. But B, that like sex can never be satisfying without a penis shaped thing to go along with it. Yeah. And that the extent of lesbian sexuality is like brushing each other's hair and taking <laughs> long baths. Because literally like that was a scene in that Sex yeah. and the City episode. Where they take a bath. And I think that's when Samantha, spoiler alert, is like, I can't do this anymore. And this marginalization of female sexuality and lesbian sexuality, queer sexuality, um, is reflected even in legalities around uh, sodomy. So, for instance, women having sex with women was not forbidden under English common law. And as William Eskridge points out in his book, Dishonorable Passions, which is a history of U.S. sodomy laws, if you're looking for some light reading this season, um, he notes that from the 1600s, the American colonies outlawed bestiality and anal sex between women and men and, of course, between two men. But the New Haven colony was the only one to include women having sex with women in its definition of sodomy. And similarly, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, many states, because of urbanization and concerns about, you know, women's sexuality outside of the home and premarital sex and all of that, many states started to regulate oral sex, but oral sex only centering around penises rather than oral sex regarding vaginas. Is that is that a smooth way to put it? Oral I, sex regarding vaginas? <laughs> Sounds like the, like a memo. <laughs> oral sex, like you're jotting it down on a notepad. But didn't you send me, what did you send me about Thomas Jefferson and like nose piercing? What was that about? So, so I want to go back and verify this because it was either in that human sexuality encyclopedia or it was noted in dishonorable passions. But um, in 1776, 
So this historical snippet I ran across alleges Thomas Jefferson recommended that rather than being executed for sodomy, women caught having sexual relations with other women should simply like have their nose pierced, kind of like Scarlet Letter style. Interesting. So the men were expected to be executed for sodomy in certain cases, but not the women, according to this right. snippet. Right. Although Eskridge points out um, that there were very few executions that actually took place um, as a result of these sodomy laws. Um, but, I mean, the, the threatened punishments were still out there. So, I mean, all of that to say that... It's never really been seen even legally as as a risk. It's not until, as we talk about in the Boston Marriages episode, it's not really until um, the you know 1910s and 20s when we start to get the rise of psychotherapy that people start worrying more about lesbianism. Yes, scary, scary inverted sexuality. Um, but when we do jump forward back to the 1980s and beyond, we start to see more and more people being like, are these lines drawn in the sand when it comes to libido, sex drive, sexuality? Are these entirely accurate? Yeah, I mean, and this amid all of the the U-Haul jokes and Beth dead panic and ideas about uh, you know, lesbians having like very boring sex lives once they couple up. Yeah. Uh, the, the U-Haul joke being like, what does a lesbian bring to the second date? I think I'm botching this. Um, that's not part of the joke. I actually think I'm botching <laughs> this joke. Um, but the answer is a U-Haul because they're going to like move in together immediately and then sleep in their <laughs> their deathbed. Yeah, I mean, because we all know that lesbians do practice a just a, a lesbian form of bundling. You know, they've they've got the lesbian bundling board between them. They're sleeping in their lesbian bundling sacks. So no lesbian sex is happening. Yeah. Why, why would they want to do that? Did I say lesbian enough? Well, and speaking of the repetition of lesbians, though, <laughs> I mean, the, the very concept of lesbian bed death is also a very narrow concept of sexuality in that women who have sexual relationships or just relationships with other women are necessarily lesbian, that there's not like fluidity happening. There's bisexual erasure going on, of course, Um, all sorts of things. So many things. But thankfully, we have more recent research. Oh, good. That's like, okay, you know what? We need to we need to do some digging here. So in 2014, uh, there was a study published in the Journal of Sex Research titled Beyond Lesbian Bed Death, Enhancing Our Understanding of the Sexuality of Sexual Minority Women. And this is one of several, several studies. And I mean, if you listen to Sminty, you know this. This is one of several studies to a question, the penis-centric, penetration-centric view of what is sexual intercourse. Yeah, because the study authors had a hunch that in that 1983 survey asking people like when was the last time you had sex, you immediately think of that intercourse centric definition of it. Mm-hmm. So, they were like, well, what if we take surveys of both genital and non-genital contact? Because 
there are all sorts of definitions of sex yes. and satisfying sexual expressions mm-hmm. that do not necessarily include any form of penetration. That's right. Yes. And so it is possible, ladies and gentlemen, that not only Pep and Phil's study, but so many past studies of sexuality and sex erased huge parts of the population and a huge number of sexual activities because we are so stuck on this idea of penetration or genital-to-genital contact in general. General genital-to-genital contact. Right. I had to pause and make sure that I said all of that right. <laughs> that and oral sex regarding vaginas. I mean, we're just like two <laughs> smooth-talking gals. Okay, no one no one can ever accuse us, though, of being like overly sexual on this <laughs> podcast because we're clearly very still like, I'm going to write a memo about sex. Well, we're just trying to choose our words carefully uh, for a general audience. Um, but speaking of words, I speaking of words, <laughs> how, I think that might be the worst transition I've ever made. Um, <laughs> Um, but I learned two new technical terms thanks to this Beyond Bed Death study, which is fraudage and tribidism. And fraudage, is, as far as I could tell, just has to do with frontal contact, kissing, mm-hmm. cuddling, hugging. But tribidism is a fancy term for what, Caroline? For scissoring. I had to look it up, too. I was like, tribe, is that supposed to be tribalism? Is there some weird, like, what's going on? And I had to Google it because I can admit my own straight person ignorance. I had no idea. Yeah. Uh, so we have fraudage and tribalism. Um, also, shout out to any asexuals listening to this as well, because there is satisfaction that that community derives obviously from from not having what we would think of as this you know the phallocentric heterosexist cis-centric concept of what sex equals god i don't know if i could say that five times fast i certainly can't i'm surprised <laughs> that it all came <laughs> surprised i got it out that one time yeah but so basically this study the beyond bed death study which should be like a store like bed bath and beyond <laughs> next door is beyond bed death <laughs> Bed, bath, and beyond bed death. <laughs> wow. Oh, wait, it's even better to wow. combine it. Um, I love us. Um, so basically, these researchers happily found that once you do broaden all of those categories, once you remove all of those restrictions in terms of sexuality and, and all of that stuff, you find that, or they found that in their study, most of their participants did engage in non-genital sexual contact at least once a day, and genital contact one to three times a week. And only 11% of the women who were in relationships 10 years plus had no genital contact in the past month, which is about the same for women in opposite sex relationships of the same length. Yeah, and they found that uh, controlling for other factors, relationship length only accounted for 7% of the variability or the chance that you had or had not had any kind of intimate contact um, in a recent period of time, which, again, is not far off at all from similar statistics from opposite sex relationships. Rather, they found frequency of genital contact was a stronger determinant of relationship satisfaction than non-genital contact. Not terribly surprising. Um, but as the study authors pointed out, that challenges the idea or stereotype of lesbians as only wanting that emotional bond just to talk throughout the night and <laughs> bundling, essentially, 
<laughs> getting in your bundle bag and gabbing till the sun comes up. Les bundles. <laughs> Liz. I think that you could probably get lesbian bundle bags at uh, Bed Bath and Beyond Bed Death. <laughs> I love this so much. Um, yeah, but here's the thing. So, you know, all of these studies that we cited earlier, like the, the 1980s study in particular, looked at frequency as a determinant of satisfying sex lives. Like, if you're not having sex X number of times a week, then, uh-oh, your bed is dead or whatever. Um, but it turns out that there's other factors, and that is quality. So quality versus quantity and and length of time. And what I'm getting at, these study authors in the 2014 study described uh, sexual activity as, quote-unquote, leisurely, and lasting 57 minutes on average. Another study, uh, 10% of the women in that study reported it lasting about two hours. And I don't mean to sound like a prude or an old or someone who is not committed to my loving boyfriend. But an hour? I got things to do. Two hours? Like, I'm going to need to take a bathroom break. Two hours? That's the movie and the previews. <laughs> You know, Um, so we're going to dig more into this quality versus quantity issue when we come right back from a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Arches and Halos. Between being on video calls all day, having to wear masks everywhere and now using our eyes and only our eyes to smile at people, it feels like the main thing people notice now are our eyes. Arches and Halos is our favorite brow products that is so easy to find, pick up, and with a few quick steps, have the most amazing brows ever. They have professional quality products at the perfect price point. Celebrity makeup artists use Arches and Halos because of how well done the formulas are, and they are half the price of department store brands. They have eight color shades to choose from, everything from sunny blonde to auburn to charcoal. Everyone is represented. They cater to women and men of all brow shapes and sizes. Embrace your natural brow. And they're all about individuality. Brow tools for all looks and style needs. You can use for dramatic or natural look. They have an amazing range of products, too, from tweezers, razors, pencils, pomade, mousses, gels, all kinds of things. Find Arches and Halos on your next trip to Target and Walgreens. Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. This episode of Stuff I Never Told You is brought to you by Catan. This summer looks a lot different than most. We're staying at home for the most part, and many events we usually look forward to are canceled. We find ourselves looking for new activities to enjoy at home. Catan is a board game for three to four players ages 10 and up, although many younger kids can play with initial adult guidance. It's a great way to keep families engaged and off screens, even if it is just for a little while. And those opportunities are hard to come by. Unlike the roll your dice, move your mice games, this is a little different. What are your experiences? The first time I played Catan was at our office game night, and it was so fun. It was quick to pick up. It was easy. It was social. We made it really competitive because we're a competitive group, but you don't have to. And what I thought was just going to be a, a short game among friends turned into an epic game night that we shall remember forever. <laughs> hours we played, hours. And uh, yes, I lost, but I had fun. You had fun. <laughs> well, obviously, it keeps you really social. And like you said, it is really easy to pick up, which is really nice right now. 
This year is the 25th anniversary of Catan. Get Catan at catanshop.com slash mom. Listeners of the podcast get 10% off the original base game Catan by using the promo code mom at checkout. Offer not good on other Catan titles or merchandise. So we have some more studies that we want to highlight. But first, I wanted to toss out a quote that was cited in a piece over the Daily Dot, um, which was, you know, myth busting the concept of lesbian bed death. And they cited um, something that sex therapist Suzanne Iacenda wrote in a 2001 article uh, in which she said, it's safe to say that if sex research questions focus on longevity instead of the number of sexual acts, lesbians would be the winners. <laughs> I picture them on a tr- on a pedestal with a trophy. Yeah. Although really, does it have to be a competition? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It shouldn't be. That's absolutely what I thought as well. This is not a thing. Winners and losers. If you're having sex that feels good and that you like, and it's the frequency that's pleasing and the length that's pleasing... Uh, then we're all winners. Yeah. And we all, we all will win a giant clitoris shaped trophy made by clitorisy artist Sophia Wallace. Although I have a feeling that like men who have, are having sex with men might oh, not want that. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. I just got really caught up in our like lesbian bundling concept. Uh, maybe we just all win pizza. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Take a lactate. I'll or, be fine. Or a giant, you know, winner's cup filled with pizza rolls. Oh. Yeah, I'm hungry. I am so hungry. <laughs> um, but it absolutely has been necessary for researchers to highlight how, you know, this this frequency versus longevity issue um, is pertinent to putting the bed death idea to bed and death. <laughs> so there is a another study that came out in 2014 in the Journal of Sexual Medicine which went viral because it found that single lesbian identified women orgasmed more often during sexual encounters compared to single straight identified women. And everyone was like, whoa. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of this is physical. A lot of it's emotional and mental because... With women, if women are having sex with women and we find that on average they're taking like almost an hour to do it, that's a lot of built in foreplay time. Well, and speaking of foreplay, here are a couple of factors that researchers think contribute to the higher rate of orgasms. And I do want to note that like a lot of the um, coverage of this study said, you know, lesbians have more orgasms as if it's like. You know, just like by sheer number, like the gross number of orgasms (laughs) is larger for women having sexual relations with women versus women having sexual relations with men um, or, you know, penises and vaginas interacting (laughs) like at a party (laughs) around the hors d'oeuvre table. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But it's worth noting that they're talking about like orgasms per sexual encounter, which to me is a notable like nuance to this because it's like the sheer frequency of sexual encounters might be lower, but it's like getting more bang for your buck kind of. And one factor to that is that research finds that women in same sex relationships are way likelier to engage in oral sex. Also, 
We've got some neurology happening. Um, in 2013, neurologist Sari Van Anders presented some research to the Society for Scientific Study of Sex. They're like annual conference. Their acronym is. She went to this conference. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's so fun to hear in, in earbuds. Sorry. Um, Sorry. But Van Anders found that women expect to both give and receive orgasms when they're having sex with other women, like almost like it's a given, like it's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Like that's what you do. Whereas women having sex with men who tend to rely a lot on vaginal intercourse did not expect to receive an orgasm. <laughs> and it makes me think of like, you know, that book, the secret that Oprah made so popular. It's like, are, is it because we're not manifesting our orgasms, do we need to make a, a vision board for the kind of like sexual pleasure we want to have? Well, I mean, this is like the stuff we discussed in our last episode when it comes to libido and communication. Like, no matter who you are, or what your sexual preferences are, like, uh, when you communicate with your partner or partners plural that you want an orgasm or don't, I mean, I don't, whatever, um, then you can all work toward a common goal. I mean, like, again, not to be TMI, but like, my boyfriend and I view sex that way too. Like, everybody's going to have a good time. Um, and so we work toward that, you know, because I don't think it's fair otherwise. And since 2014 was apparently just like the year of <laughs> research about um, same-sex female sexuality, Karen Blair, who's done a lot of uh, work in this area, published what is considered like the first study comparing sexual frequency and duration of same-sex female and same-sex male relationships and opposite-sex relationships. So essentially she took the same groups of people that old Pep and Phil were looking at in 1983, and she wanted to look more at uh, frequency and duration. Mm-hmm. And again, she found that women having sex with women have lower sexual frequency overall, but compared to averages between 8 to 15 minutes for straight sex, 30 minutes was the average starting point for lesbian couples. And I don't have the average number for uh, for gay men's sexy times, too, but I know that of those, like, lesbians were having the longest sex of everyone. But there was no significant difference among those groups in terms of relationship satisfaction. Not to mention everyone was like, you know what? Yeah, we go through dry spells from time to time because we do. Most Mm -hmm. people do. Some people don't. Most people do. (laughs) Everybody's different. Everyone's different. Um, And the big conclusion that Blair drew from this was that our focus on how often are you having sex is leaving out the quality of what's happening and not to say that like time equals quality, but um, we need to, in the same way that we need to broaden our definition of what sex is and what satisfaction is, Mm -hmm. we need to broaden our definition of what a healthy sex life is. Sure. And nobody wants to get caught up in obligation sex. I mean, speaking of dry spells, sure, everybody goes through them. And, you know, your sex drive is not always going to be equal to your partner's. I don't think that's news to anyone. But, yeah, I I like shifting the focus to quality versus quantity. 
and really opening up those channels of communication about what is satisfying. I wonder if there are any studies on the kind of maintenance sex that you're talking about. Like with a wrench? (laughs) That you got at Bed Bath and Beyond Bed Death? Yeah. Um, No, the, the, the idea of kind of the not so much obligation sex, it's more obligation to the relationship that you know you need to have sex. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I think that you can absolutely have maintenance sex, as you put it, you know, bring on, bring on the tool belt and, but be in, in good communication with each other that like, we know that we're on the same page in terms of wanting to maintain sex as an important part of our relationship. So it doesn't have to be a downer. It doesn't have to be obligation sex. It could be like, we just know that doing this is an important part of maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Just like eating your vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good roasted broccoli. That's what she said. <laughs> what does it even mean? And one term that was introduced in this whole conversation about, uh, you know, moving away from that more phallocentric and cis-centric idea of what sex is, is that we might be better off if we adopt a concept of optimal sexuality, which is more individually tailored than one size fits all. Right. Being open to doing what feels good and what feels right for you and your partner. Yeah. Rather than like holding yourself to a single standard, which is so unrealistic and it does a disservice to everyone. This is not just an issue of queer women, but I mean, it's potentially liberating for for all of us, regardless of like what sexual orientation you might be. Um, so <laughs> I just got to say, I was really happy to myth bust this whole thing. Yes, me too. But one thing I am curious to hear from listeners is whether pop culture reinforces this idea. Um, this was something I had asked you about because it comes up in The Kids Are All Right. Um, it definitely comes up between the couple, uh, Betty and Tina, or Bet and Tina, excuse me, on The L Word. Um, I see it somewhat in uh, the character of Harper on Jessica Jones. She's the she was in the Matrix. She was what's her name in the Matrix, and she's the lawyer. Oh yeah, yeah. Who is having an affair, like a hot and heavy affair? But there's the implication of bed death with her long term partner. Well, I'm not sure. I see what you mean. I'm not an expert by any stretch of the imagination, but. When we're talking about straight couples and bed death, period, in general, like the show that makes me cringe is Togetherness on HBO. Uh, one of the couples on the show like has massive issues around sex and communication and their new parents and the whole nine yards. And it's painful to watch. The it, There's a bunch of real talk in that show. Well, I was about to say, I mean, I think it's so painful Um to watch because there is a lot of truth in that dynamic and the awkwardness of it. Yeah. Um, and who was it? I think it was Hannah Rosen over at Slate interviewed um, Mark Duplass because mm-hmm. uh, it's produced by the Duplass brothers. Um, and he got very transparent um, to cite another show where <laughs> I think lesbian bed death comes up a little bit. Um, but he was very transparent about Issues that both he and his brother have dealt with in their own marriages, especially 
post kids. Yeah, and watching because he was yeah he was talking a lot too about like just watching their friend group in general as people started to have kids, and if people weren't communicating well. Um, the terrible stuff that they were going through where sex ends up not only feeling like a chore or an obligation, but it starts to be weaponized. Like your attitudes around sex become really prickly and dangerous and it becomes not a thing of like, hey, let's just talk about sex and what feels good and let's experiment to like... Isn't that a song? Yeah. Uh, yes, it's my new... My band is... Let's talk about sex, oh. baby. Oh, sure. Yeah, that too. I guess my band can't put it out. Um, Copyright infringement. Dang it. That was the name of it. Um, Copyright infringement? Yeah, my band. But yeah, just how scary sex can become. And I, I don't mean like necessarily the act of doing it, but even like approaching sex, thinking about it, fearing it, treating it as this weight on your relationship. And that just is the worst. Because there is a lot of pressure. I think regardless of... Your sexual orientation, there is, and, and regardless of your gender identity, mm-hmm. there is pressure because we have so long had this single standard of how often healthy long-term couples should be having sex. Mm-hmm. And if life gets in the way and if stressful times happen, you know, and suddenly you find that, oh, you haven't like done it in a while, you start thinking about all of the things that you've heard about it. Yeah. You know, I... I clearly remember the first time watching Sex in the City, not to keep referencing it this episode, but when Carrie and Samantha are talking about how, you know, sex is the barometer of a healthy relationship oh, and God. immediately thinking about like my own boyfriend at the time and being like, oh no. And it stuck in my head for so long. Um, and I also want to ask listeners whether we should come back and do an episode on sexless relationships and marriages and the whole roommate syndrome issue, because this is something that comes up not just in marriage, but also just straight up like cohabitation. Yeah. And dynamic changes. Yeah, that's a huge fear. And and even just fearing the roommate syndrome is a weight and a pressure that makes you potentially overthink what's happening in your own relationship. But something that might be a little bit of a comfort and just a healthy reminder to women, especially listening women or people who are in sexual relationships with women is to keep in mind that there is simply a tidal wave of things that can sway our sexual desire and responsiveness in the moment and over time, including, but not limited to things like birth control, your medications, antidepressants, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, vaginismus and vulvodynia, those other conditions that can cause painful intercourse, even just our menstrual cycles and menopause, stress, pregnancy and childbirth, and, of course, just feeling panicked that your relationship might descend into a sexless quagmire of angst. I mean, that's... (laughs) it, It doesn't exactly prime you for a romantic evening. This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh pre-measured ingredients and mouthwatering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun, easy, and affordable. And while we're under a quarantine, I will say HelloFresh has so many recipes. It's been wonderful because it gets me out of my rut and I'm able to try new recipes instead of my same old, same old. And they offer contactless delivery to your doorstep for easy home cooking with the family so you don't have to have those stressful meal planning and grocery store trips. 
Even better, HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients means there's less prep for you and less food waste. So if you're ready to try some of the delicious food from HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first box. That's HelloFresh.com slash MomStuff80 and use code MomStuff80 to get a total of $80 off and free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions apply. Please visit HelloFresh.com for more details. This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes, and right now that is more important than ever, especially when we're all apart. So recently I had a group and we had a a socially distanced barbecue where the host drew out circles and chalk that were six feet apart. And everyone showed up with their own chairs and beverages. And it was really convenient to have disposable products. And we we just had a, a lovely conversation. Um, it was really fun. Yeah. And I'm with the disposable products. I know that the China brand provides durable and trusted products, which I have used before, that let you enjoy every moment of the get-togethers and traditional or now not. And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. Chinette products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup. Yeah, so perhaps we could be better served to remember that sexualities, sexual preferences, and libidos are different, not better or worse. Different, not better or worse. And also that maybe, like we've been saying, we should focus more on quality over quantity and having fun and having good open communication rather than like, today's Tuesday, which means I've got to take out the trash, I've got to pick up the dog, and oh yeah, we've got to like do it at some point. Have some maintenance sex. Um, I do especially want to hear from queer women listening ab- about whether the lesbian bed death stereotype is something that is pervasive, like just within your in-group culture, you know, if it's just a joke or if it is something that kind of gets in your head because stereotypes get in our heads. Oh, yeah. Big time. Um, So I'm very much looking forward to hearing from all of you about this issue. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at MomStuffPodcast or message us on Facebook And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. All right. I have a letter here from Scottney in response to our Black Romantic Comedies episode. She says, I just listened to the last rom-com installment and I loved it. I can't tell you how annoying it is when my quote-unquote mainstream friends or coworkers expect me to have seen all the quote classic rom-coms or other movies for that matter, but have no idea what, what I'm talking about when I quote or reference movies like Best Man or Brown Sugar, which I think Caroline accidentally called Black Sugar in the episode. Haha. <laughs> Ugh. Sorry. Uh, my brain, you know, hey. Um, and Scottney writes, a couple of thoughts. One, this is just a theory, but I think another reason, quote, black movies struggle to be marketed as mainstream is because many of them, particularly in recent years, a la Tyler Perry or Steve Harvey, uh, there are very strong Christian themes, which leads to some, at times, problematic gender roles. For many black Americans, religion is very important, so it shows up a lot in black culture media, which you don't always see in mainstream, a.k.a. white rom-coms. As a black atheist, this can be really frustrating, but there have been and continue.
continue to be some rom-coms or just roms that are a little more secular with some more complex gender roles, especially in the indie world. And two, in terms of interracial couples, which I strongly vote for an episode on in general, if you haven't done one already, I wanted to point out two awesome examples on the small screen. The leads are white, of course, but on both Supergirl and The Flash, the romantic interests in the will-they-won't-they relationship, who are normally depicted as white in the comics, are both black. Candace Patton on The Flash plays Iris West, and the delectable Makad Brooks as James Olsen on the super-fun, girl-power, feminist-themed, action-packed Supergirl. Being biracial myself with a white husband, it is super exciting to see these relationships depicted in popular media, and I hope to see more. I would also love to see rom-coms with people of all colors, and I'd like to think as more people of color are becoming active in the film industry, we will. Thanks for the awesomeness you continue to bring to the podcast world. Oh, and P.S., you asked about Denzel and rom-coms, and he did Mississippi Masala, which is a pretty cute one. Well, thanks, Scottney. So I've got a letter here from... Jennifer, subject line, OMG, I'm a racist movie watcher. Jennifer writes, love me a rom-com. Netflix knows this and often recommends black rom-coms. I never watch them. I never considered this bias until now, and I'm so mad and disappointed in myself for falling into this Hollywood trap. If I would have stopped to think about these movies, I most definitely would have decided that they do, in fact, speak to me. Love is love, after all. But the sad thing is that I didn't even spend 15 seconds thinking about them. They were immediately dismissed. I am determined to right this racist wrong and on your advice have added two movies to my must-see list, Love and Basketball and Something New. I can't wait to see them. Thank you for the eye-opening podcast. I was upset to realize that even being a sweet liberal Canadian like me has some racist tendencies, and I'm determined to beat that out of myself Netflix binge style. Well, thank you so much, Jen. Um, and I would also recommend you watching Love Jones. The full movie is on YouTube. I watched it. It's fantastic. So listeners, let us know all of your thoughts. Mom stuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources so you can learn more about sexuality, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. If you crack open an American history book, it's sure to be filled with founding fathers, bloody wars, and the inventions that brought this country to the industrial age. But there's a whole other world that waits for us in the shadows. Tales of unlikely heroes, world-changing tragedies, and legends that are unique to this country's spirit. So join me, Lauren Vogelbaum, for a tour of American history unlike any other through a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke's Grim and Mild. Get ready for American Shadows. Listen to American Shadows on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Amy Nelson. And I'm Sam Edis. We're the hosts of iHeart's newest podcast, What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We both have our own businesses, and between us, we have seven children. And since the moment we met, we've been sharing our stories with each other. The thing is, we all know the stories of industry titans like Bezos and Jobs, but the stories of women, they remain incomplete. We ask questions no one else even touches. We are not afraid to get personal. So listen to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.